Thank you very much, and thank you, Leila, for inviting me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, it's interesting, when you're a student, um, everything else kind of blots to the side in terms of your relationship with the university. So it's just the first time, I think, that I've engaged with the university in terms of my professional work. It's about time. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, I, um, I have been working at Redress for about 15 years now, uh, which is a super long time. And in a way, the, the basic principles and guidelines have, in a way, underscored all of my experiences at Redress on, on so many different levels, um, as well as my relationship with Professor Van Boven, who, um, who, who was the genesis of these principles. Um, I think um, when I first got to Redress, um, the principles were already well on the agenda, but very far from being adopted. Um, from an NGO perspective, our goal was to figure out what the problems were with states, um, why were state, where, where were, were states having their, their problem points, and also to, to really think, well, what were our bottom lines in terms of pushing? Um, and from the NGO perspective, um, you can think about the different NGOs which engage with the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Geneva. Um, at the time, very few were focused on victims' rights. The whole movement of uh, an acknowledgement of the rights of victims from a human rights perspective was very much something that was just, it was just not done. Think about Amnesty International, um, focus on prisoners' rights. Um, so one thing we had to do as this very tiny NGO um, was figure out how to develop some kind of coalition amongst NGOs and encourage NGOs to come on board to what we thought was a central goal, but others thought, didn't really understand or thought it was peripheral or, um, well, as long as there's a prosecution, everything else will fall into place. There, there was not really a sense of the centrality of this. Um, and I would say from a large perspective, our allies, at least on the NGO side, came much more from um, the grassroots NGOs working in different countries around the world who were confronted with victims on a daily basis, particularly those countries who had undergone mass violations. So countries in Latin America, some countries in Asia and Africa. That's where the NGOs really understood why there had to be some kind of central focus on, on victims from a human rights perspective. I would say from the international human rights organizations, they were a bit slower to come on board, but then they did, and that was super helpful and really important to um, getting the, the movements all aligned to push for these principles. Um, but if we think about these principles, 10 years since they were adopted, but much longer since they originally came onto the agenda, the basic principles and guidelines um, the idea was initially uh, 1989, um, which is much earlier, if you think about how to, to develop these principles, where, I don't know, what, what's it called, the, the, um, 
the special subcommittee within uh, the uh, Human Rights Commission at the time um, had developed this mandate to develop a basically a document to understand what what this meant. So Professor Van Boven was first assigned to develop the principles. He uh, started by doing research by having a number of expert meetings where he got together um, criminolo criminologists, psychologists, lawyers, uh, civil society activists, and he did a lot of research on the, the variety of ad hoc measures that had been put into place. That resulted in his report, which was issued in 1993, um, which was a really seminal report and the first of its kind from, from a variety of different perspectives. Um, but there were lots of fits and starts from that point on. It wasn't, oh well, let's look at this report, then let's have a debate with states and then let's adopt it a year later. 1993 to 2005, that's a really long time for something to sit and percolate. Um, there were a lot of things that were happening around the same time um, which contributed to this debate and this progressive understanding and co co uh, basically common point of view on reparations. Um, one was a document which came out of the crime branch, the UN crime branch in uh, Vienna, um, which was the 1985 Declaration on Victims of Crime and Abuse of Power, which was a fundamental, fundamental text which focused on crime victims. The uh, basic principles and guidelines go, go beyond. It's much more focused on human rights and humanitarian law, uh, which includes crime victims, but goes beyond. But the Declaration on Victims of Crime and Abuse of Power was the first victim-centric text which looked at victims' rights in the context of criminal justice. Um, and importantly, that text didn't only deal with mass crimes. It dealt with all crimes and interjected both from a procedural point of view as, um, in terms of victims' rights to participate in proceedings, to, uh, to be protected, the avoidance of trauma, re-traumatization, et cetera, as well as reparation after. Um, in 1997, there were the uh, impunity principles by uh, French academic Louis Joannet, um, which uh, identified a trilogy of rights, the right to know, uh, the right to justice, the right to reparation. Hopefully I'm remembering that correctly. But that was a quite seminal text, which um, in a way jumped ahead of the basic principles and guidelines because of some of the debates I'll get into in just a minute about um, the adoption of the, the basic principles and guidelines. Then you had the Rome Statute in 1998. Um, and what was quite interesting about the Rome Statute is the basic principles and guidelines, there was already a draft circulating amongst the international community. And uh, Professor Van Boven, who wrote that draft, was the Dutch delegate to the Rome Conference. So he was really instrumental in pushing through a Rome Statute, which was very far advanced from the perspective of victims' rights, far beyond what we know uh, was in place at Nuremberg, as well as with respect to the International Criminal Tribunals for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. 
So part of that was Professor Van Boven's doing and the fact that there was this text to reflect back upon, even though it was still only in draft form. Um, other delegations who were particularly important were France, um, pushing forward their uh, criminal justice system to be incorporated into the International Criminal Court statute with some form of civil party participation. Um, 2001, you have the Articles on State Responsibility, which were um, accepted by the International Law Commission, which for the first time really put in place a framework which recognized state responsibility for internationally wrongful acts and very clearly set out there's an obligation to afford reparation for any breach of an international law obligation. Um, then you have the statute, the ICC statute, uh, which was adopted in 2002. So each of these different texts um, really built upon the other. And I would say from the perspective of NGO advocacy and the, the role of states in, in developing international law norms, they all had a catalytical effect because to an extent you had the same people involved in these different developments um, so they were influenced one to the other. Also, um, what was happening at the domestic level um, with respect to criminal law um, in many countries was very instrumental. Particularly in common law countries, there's been a movement, mainly since the 70s, um, to recognize victims' rights in different aspects of criminal procedure, the whole field of victimology um, developed the recognition that victims should have a right in sentencing procedures. That whole framework in, of analysis which uh, was really brought to bear in the 70s and the 80s in the United States, in Australia, in India, in Canada, in a range of common law countries um, was in a way the, the backdrop um, to these developments at the international level which um, was quite interesting because the civil law countries, France, Belgium, uh, countries with a, uh, a Roman law tradition where victims traditionally could participate <coughs> in civil proceedings, the traditional arguments um, for the I ICTY, ICTR, Nuremberg were that, um, well that's simply one side, common law you don't have any of that. But because of all of these developments also within common law systems, that was able to have an influence. The other final influence, which I think is really important uh, to note, is the failures at the ICTY and ICTR, the Rwanda and Yugoslavia tribunals, who did such a bad job of dealing with victims. Um, so there was this acknowledgement that um, victims who were being cross-examined in the most abusive ways, victims who um, didn't get access to antiretroviral anti drugs when the perpetrator sitting in detention, the accused persons, uh, did. Um, there were a lot of uh, imbalances that needed to be taken into account. So all of these factors came into play. Um, so as I mentioned, the NGOs had quite an important role to play in advocating for these basic principles and guidelines to come into being. Um, but also I would say the psychological community, um, the um, academics and practitioners working on trauma. 
in a variety of different countries uh, really impacted on the debates, and as well states themselves. There were a number of key champions, such as Chile, which led from the state perspective the adoption of these basic principles and guidelines was really quite important. So what were the main challenges for this text to be adopted? The first had to do with language, uh, the right to a remedy and reparation. Um, these terms, remedy, reparation, have been used in all sorts of different ways. There wasn't a common understanding of what they meant. Um, also, they weren't easily translatable. You had very different terms in French or in German or in other languages. It was very difficult to come to a common understanding of what the terms were, what they meant, and how they should be applied in a human rights text. What ended up emerging was that remedy focused more on the procedural side in terms of victims' access to justice. Reparation focused more on the substantive side what are the measures of reparation which could result? But it wasn't so obvious that that's the way the terms are going to be used. Um, but that, that's the way it worked. Um, the second, uh, I would say, challenge um, with respect to the debates relating to the adoption to the text um, has to do with state responsibility. You had the International Law Commission's articles on the responsibility of states um, which doesn't deal with um, the rights of individuals. It's um, a very classical international law framework where um, it talks about what states who do bad things owe to other states, not what states who do bad things owe to victims. So there was a reluctance among certain, certain sectors of the international community to say, well, you can't just transpose this uh, classical international law framework into a human rights framework. There has to be a process of translation. You can't simply say that whatever state obligations are to other states, they have those same obligations to individuals. Um, but there was a lot of pushback on that, particularly because the language of uh, human rights texts um, were so clearly um, beginning and, well, really since the beginning, recognizing victims' rights to a remedy. Um, and that was really one of the, w one of the places where um, that was a, a big game, I think, in, in the, the debates um, where it was really fundamental that we achieved that and that was recognized. Another big debate, and this one was won as well, but probably um, many people would argue more about um, whether it was right, has to do with international humanitarian law. International humanitarian law has a very different genesis than human rights law. Human rights law is about um, states' obligations to individuals. International humanitarian law, if you look at the treaties, it's really from a classical point of view about um, states' responsibility to other states. So to derive from international humanitarian law a right of victims to obtain reparation was very difficult for some states. Also taking into account um, the fact that there were a lot of fears about how it was going to be used practically. Um, states were very concerned about their liability in re relation to international humanitarian law didn't want to create a right of victims, um, which was outside of this classical framework, which itself is a limiting 
has a limiting uh, um, kind of prevents victims from accessing it because of the lack of access to courts. Um, if you look into the detail from an international humanitarian law perspective, what's clear from the text is that um, there's a, uh, victims, or at least certain categories of victims, have clear rights to obtain reparation, but victims' ability to independently assert that in court uh, is somewhat more controversial and more difficult. So this was a bit problematic, which is why the text in the end focused on a limited subset of international humanitarian law norms as opposed to the whole rubric. Um, this falls into which violations? So I think one of the uh, reasons why the declaration focuses only on gross human rights violations and serious international uh, violations of human rights is because of part of this reason. It was part of the uh, pushback. Um, another area where the basic principles and guidelines are very important is has to do with the definition of victims. Um, here, um, one of the important, uh, most important aspects of this is the recognition that a victim is a victim irregardless of any criminal conviction. Um, so this notion of um, a person only is entitled to rights after the crime is proven um, is not incorporated into the basic principles and guidelines, which has been extremely important from a litigation point of view, um, though it hasn't always translated into practice in a domestic context. Um, other issue, non-state actors. The uh, basic principles and guidelines is a human rights text, so it deals with state obligations, but it makes quite a number of references to other actors, which is quite important. Um, almost in an oblique way, it doesn't go into it in uh, quite a lot of detail, but what it does do is it explains states' obligations to exercise due diligence um, in relation to non-state actors, and states' obligation to in a way to afford or to develop the mechanisms by which victims can obtain reparation from non-state actors. So it's, it's somewhat a secondary, but it's still quite important. Um, and finally, in terms of uh, difficulties or challenges, is the status of the rules. Um, do the rules, are, are, do, they, are, do they reflect general international law? Um, are they aspirational? This is somewhat of a debate that has raged more amongst academic circles than from a practical point of view, but nonetheless, there is debate about um, to what extent the principles are articulating standards which are already there or are creating new standards. Probably somewhere in the middle is the answer. Uh, certainly on international humanitarian law, the principles are quite innovative and have gone beyond the norm. Um, two main components to speak about. Um, important areas where the, uh, the text has been really important is on, in articulating the procedural components, uh, the right to a remedy from a victim's perspective. Um, so there's quite a lot of language about um, uh, the need for protective frameworks for victims in order to assert their rights, uh, the need to avoid re-traumatization, um, uh, uh, rights to access to information, all sorts of procedural rights. And then in terms of reparation, the measures, 
um, the principles I think have been most cited for their quite careful articulation of the different forms of reparation, focusing on um, restitution, compensation, rehabilitation, satisfaction and guarantees of non-repetition. Unfortunately, some states in terms of implementation have used that as uh, something to choose. You know, we'll take number two out of those five as opposed to looking at what would fit best, even though the principles indicates that um, any, any uh, response to these types of violations should be adequate and effective, should be proportionate to the gravity, which necessarily involves, uh, in most cases, uh, different forms of these different violations. Um, I want to talk a little bit, and time is running away for me. That's fine, all right. Okay, no, we have we're like we're about 10. We have okay. 20 actually if you want. So. Okay, excellent. Um, so I want to talk about uh, how the principles have been applied and some of the challenges. Um, the first issue I want to focus on is how the principles have been adapted to speci specific groups of victims. And here I think it's quite interesting. Um, basic principles and guidelines, when they were developed, uh, there was a sense that there was a need to have a document which would be basically general and cater to basically everyone. Um, and there's a clause about non-discrimination, equality, etc. But it doesn't go at all into detail about the special needs of different categories of victims. Um, and this was really taken up by uh, groups who focus on the specific violations um, uh, perpetrated against women and girls. Um, and in 2007, a group of women's rights activists met um, to consider the basic principles and guidelines as they would or should apply to women and girls. And this was a very interesting dialogue that I had the luxury of participating in, which um, focused mainly on um, violations against women and girls in conflict. Um, but I would say the Nairobi Declaration, which came out of those dialogues, which is an NGO text, um, but has been cited in a number of courts in different uh, jurisdictions, um, has been really important from a number of perspectives. Um, the first perspective um, where, where it had a ma massive influence was in what has been termed as transformative reparations. Um, the first um, principle of reparation from the Van Boven principles is that uh, restitution is a, is a formal, is, is one of the main goals of reparation. What does restitution mean? It means to put the victim back in the situation that they would have been but for the violation. Fundamental principle, this is also a principle which is very well articulated in the Articles on Responsibility of States. Um, but the women and girls group <laughs> said, well, we don't want to go back to where we were before the violation because that place was a really horrible place and that place is really from the starting points of why we were victimized in the first place. And this was a really important, almost like a, a brain, like a light bulb moment, for lack of better uh, phrase. Um, so the Nairobi Declaration really gets into detail on this and says, well, you don't want to put uh, 
those who suffered back to the position they were in if that position is one of uh, marginalization. Reparation has to do more. It has to go beyond um, to rectify that. And here's where you could say there's a link between restitution and guarantees of non-repetition um, where they come together in a very neat way. Um, if anyone is interested in the jurisprudence on this, um, an important case coming out of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights is the Cottonfields case against Mexico, where they really focused in on this. We don't want to put these women back to that situation. We have to do more. Um, second aspect of the Nairobi Declaration, which is worth underscoring, is the need to involve women in uh, discussions and debates, uh, mainly in the context of conflict, it's really peace processes, um, to ensure that they can have a voice in determining what these measures should be. Because often, um, and I'll come back to this when I look at transitional justice measures, you have you know, a small group of people in a small little room deciding um, what, you know, how, how to what, what are going to be the measures that can be um, taken to resolve a particular conflict? But they're leaving out vast segments of society in those debates. And it, it's been recognized that by doing that, the measures, the uh, transitional measures, uh, which come out of very narrow peace processes, which don't involve different segments of the society, are not ne necessarily long-lasting. Um, so the Nairobi Declaration goes into this and talks about the need to include women and girls in debates about what reparations should look like, what it should contain, and also involve women in monitoring their success in terms of implementation. Um, many of those um, aspects uh, were taken up by the Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women uh, Rashida Manju, former special rapporteur, in her 2010 thematic report on reparations. Um, one of the things she also underscores in her report is um, the need not to think about um, women's rights violations as synonymous with sexual violence, because uh, sexual violence is, is a horrible and awful um, experience, but actually women's experience of human rights violations are much more wide-ranging. And it's important to think of that in its full constellation when there is a tendency to say, ah, oh, women, sexual violence. And, and, and she really uh, pushes in that. Um, from the international law framework, um, a number of special rapporteurs and working groups have taken up the call to look specifically at their mandates and the specific needs for reparations in the context of particular human rights violations. Here I can mention the Special Rapporteur on Trafficking in Persons has done a very important study on reparations in relation to trafficking. The uh, Committee Against Torture of the United Nations has issued a general comment on uh, Article 14 of the Convention Against Torture which focuses on rehabilitation and compensation. Um, here, the Convention of tor uh, on Torture, um, in its provision, uh, which relates to remedies, focuses in on compensation and rehabilitation. 
But the Committee Against Torture, in analyze, analyzing this, um, refers back to uh, Van Boven's basic principles and guidelines and looks at the plethora of different reparation measures. So here's one example where we can see that the basic principles and guidelines have had a lot of traction at the normative level. Other important developments is the Disappearances Convention, which goes into a huge amount of detail on uh, reparations, particularly in respect of the right to know. Um, adaption of the basic principles and guidelines and the right to reparation to specific perpetrator groups. Um, as I indicated, the text focuses on state responsibility and uh, incorporates a due diligence framework in relation to non-state actors. Um, but let's think about some specific applications. Um, the business and human rights framework, um, the protect, respect, and remedy framework uh, of um, Special Rapporteur Ruggi, um, importantly in incorporates many of the principles on reparation. Uh, right now, there are debates in Colombia in the transitional justice framework about how best to involve companies and corporate actors in the reparations framework as part of the transitional justice remedies. Um, perpetrators of crimes. At the domestic level, um, as I've already indicated, you have civil law systems where um, access to compensation has always been recognized and an ability for civil suits. At the international criminal law level, you have the International Criminal Court and the Extraordinary Chambers for the Courts in Cambodia, as well as more, more recently, um, the Special uh, African Chambers in Senegal, um, which have a reparations framework. Um, I'll get into why um, there's been a bit of difficulty in the application of uh, reparations to international criminal law frameworks in a second. Um, but here also I think it's important to note um, the important uh, quasi or non-judicial applications both at the domestic and international level. The domestic level there are numerous um, compensation commissions for victims of crime where if you're a victim of crime you can apply to a fund to get some sort of compensation. Um, there's also special funds that have been set up for victims of terrorism. Um, at the international level, a clear example is the International Criminal Court Trust Funds, um, but you would also have other kinds of compensation commissions that have been set up, such as the um, UN UNCC or other types of mechanisms. What are the key challenges with respect to all of this? You can see that the UN Basic Principles and Guidelines had a formative role to play and that they've been applied in a variety of different contexts at the normative level and have also in, in been uh, instrumental for the development of rules of procedure for different types of bodies. But in terms of practical impact, we see a, a huge number of challenges. Um, the first one has to do with the general human rights framework implementation at the domestic level in terms of the development of domestic legislation is quite uh, limited and very variable, um, both with respect to access to justice and as well as with respect to, to the actual remedies that are afforded. Um, in numerous countries, there are very short limitation periods to bring civil claims 
um, for human rights violations. The amounts, the quantum um, of the award is very limited. There's all often um, an inability to pursue anything other than compensation. So the whole plethora of measures set out in the basic principles and guidelines are not necessarily applied. Only certain types of crimes um, can give rise to a right to a reparation at the domestic level. We often find in civil law countries in particular that there's a significant problem that if you don't have the uh, perpetrator convicted, there's no possibility to get reparation at all. Um, it's because it's so difficult to, and, and complicated to use uh, civil courts. Um, there's also a backlash against those who bring the claims. Um, uh, there's been a lot of uh, backlash against lawyers, human rights defenders, uh, bribing of victims. Um, and this isn't only in um, countries with developing legal systems. Let's all think about what's happening in this country, in the United Kingdom, with respect to the backlash against the lawyers who first brought to the attention of the government the uh, significant abuses which took place in Iraq by the military. Um, with, uh, some of them are facing uh, removal of their licenses as a result of that. Um, there's a difficulty to move beyond the rhetoric with respect to enforcement. Uh, redress has numerous cases before the uh, Human Rights Committee at the United Nations. Um, we found that um, the Human Rights Committee itself, their mechanisms of enforcement are so weak that once a judgment is issued, it's very difficult even to rely on them to push for enforcement because of that. With respect to transnational litigation as opposed to domestic cases, um, immunity use is a massive bar um, to the realization of the right to reparation. Here we have famous cases of Germany against Italy with respect to international humanitarian law or Jones uh, versus the United Kingdom at the European Court of Human Rights in relation to torture. In the United States, you have other types of issues which have arisen in relation to Alien Tort Claims Act cases, for instance, the Kyobo case. With respect to international humanitarian law, as I indicated, the legal framework is a lot more nuanced um, and difficult to apply with respect to victims who are seeking to <coughs> access justice. Um, reparation frameworks typically are de de determined as part of peace processes where victims' role is so marginal. Um, if we look at the practices of the Permanent Court of Arbitration or the International Court of Justice, victims have no access to these bodies. Um, take the example of the Ethiopia-Eritrea arbitration. Very interesting example, where, uh, which has been touted as a very good example of reparation because the commission articulated what reparation should look like for a variety of international humanitarian law victims. But what happens was uh, the court came up with a final quantum of what Ethiopia owed to Eritrea and what Eritrea owed to Ethiopia. What do you think happens? They canceled each other out and the victims received nothing. Um, similar with respect to the International Court of Justice, um, here interesting example, uh, the Congo case against Uganda, 
um, there was a decision, uh, the judgment, uh, which recognized that Uganda is internationally responsible. Um, the court told the parties to go away and to come up with a plan for reparations. They didn't. Uh, ten years passed. Uh, Congo finally came back to the court and said, you know, we've made no progress. And now that is coming before the court for, in 2016, there will be arguments before the International Criminal Court, uh, International Court of Justice on what that reparation should look like. One of the judges of the ICJ, uh, Judge Kansado Chindad, um, said something which was quite interesting. He said, you know, uh, in his dissent, um, he said, um, we, you know, we really should have given a time limit for the parties to go away and decide reparations. Uh, but we didn't. Ten years passed, and now we're, we have the situation, and the victims are in a horrible situation. We should have taken a victim's approach. Um, that lone voice at the International Court of Justice is a very marginalized voice, and it's not the voice of the norm. Um, we can also take the Bosnia genocide case, where um, there was a finding that uh, Serbia was responsible for the failure to prevent genocide. Um, but the court, in its wisdom, decided that uh, the appropriate remedy for the failure to pre pre prevent genocide was simply the uh, judicial statement of that fact. Um, the victims, of course, didn't have access to that debate. Transitional justice. Uh, now I am going over time. You're fine. You're fine. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, transitional justice. Um, the most important development in this respect, I think, is that the UN has appointed a special rapporteur to look specifically at measures relating to reparations, truth, etc., with the appointment of uh, Pablo de Greif. Um, but the bad thing in terms of the practice that we see quite regularly is that there's an anything-goes type mentality with respect to reparations when it comes to, to uh, transitional justice. And this is really the debate between uh, what reparations is. Is it a political matter or is it a legal matter? How does the political impact the legal and vice versa? Um, there's a lack of an adequate framework to say um, what is adequate and effective reparations in a context of mass violations when you can't actually repair individual victims to the level in which they need to be repaired. Um, so th there's this notion of, well, we'll just give them something, and that'll be a proper way to solve the situation. But there's not really an adequate framework to determine, well, what is adequate and effective, both procedurally and substantively, to deal with reparations. There's a number of court cases where um, victims have brought claims to courts to say, well, the transitional justice framework has been inadequate to deal with reparations in my particular context. Uh, but courts have been very reluctant to entertain those types of cases because of this challenge of what is political versus what is legal. There are some interesting cases, but I think that's more the exception. So you have this difficulty with respect to transitional justice. There's also um, a challenge with respect to um, how the international development community and the international community as a whole 
has dealt with issues relating to reparations in a mass context. You have agencies like UNDP, UN Women, who've taken a very narrow approach with respect to reparations or have simply linked reparations with development to such a, a, a single degree that um, the whole purpose of reparations can get lost in some contexts. With respect to international criminal law, I think I've dealt with some of these um, issues, but the main problems that we've seen in the application of the International Criminal Court and the Extraordinary Chambers for the Courts in Cambodia's approach to reparations has been in the implementation phase. Um, so from that perspective, the International Criminal Court has articulated beautifully um, in a very wide sense what reparation means. But then when it comes to its award, its award has been quite narrow. Let's just give it to the trust funds to come up with something. Um, that's basically been the approach. In Cambodia, it's been even worse. Um, the judges have basically asked victims to come up with what they think reparation should be and how it should be paid for. So in a way, the victims and the NGOs supporting them have had to come up with a plan of, we want to build these memorial sites, and here's how we're going to pay for it. And then the, the court rubber stamps it. There's been a failure to have a trust fund and very little framework going forward. Final major challenge in the area of reparations, um, particularly given that we are looking at this issue in the context of basic principles and guidelines which came out of the United Nations Human Rights Framework is how these principles relate to um, international organizations who occasionally do wrong and occasionally do uh, perpetrate human rights or international human humanitarian law violations themselves. So here we have the draft articles on the responsibility of international organizations which were um, finalized uh, not so long ago. And they're quite important principles, but they have followed quite uh, closely the practice of the Articles on the Responsibility of States. So they don't deal with international organizations' liability or responsibility towards individuals they harm. They only deal with international organizations' liability towards states or other international organizations. Um, the Immunities Convention for, the, uh, for international organizations, for the UN in particular, talks about what should happen um, when the UN asserts it, it's immune, um, but the main issue has to do with the characterization of claims as either private or public, um, human rights violations of the kinds that we know uh, the UN tends to characterize as public claims for which it has no responsibility and has no obligation to develop uh, independent uh, claims process to determine liability. So the result is, with respect to international organizations, that you do have reparations for car accidents, but you don't have reparations for serious violations of human rights. We can see this with respect to the allegations of numerous deaths resulting from cholera in Haiti. We can see this with respect to uh, sexual exploitation and abuse on mission. Um, we can see this with respect to 
the work of the Kosovo human rights um, body, which was set up to deal with human rights, but um, none of its recommendations have been implemented by the UN. It's simply a uh, body which has recommend recommendatory powers. Uh, so the main problem here has been the lack of access of victims to decision-making bodies um, and uh, the international organizations view that they are operating under a lex specialis where they don't have to comply with general rules because they're not states. Therein lies the problems. With respect to where we are and where we've been, um, I would say most sincerely that I think we've moved quite a huge distance um, from when we were when the basic principles and guidelines were first adopted and when they were first conceived. Um, but what we now see, which is really quite interesting, is that people are trying to use them. So the devil is in the detail. We're having all sorts of problems in their application. Those problems are not insurmountable. We're simply in the muck trying to, to, to work our way through those problems, and we haven't yet come out on the other side. Thanks so much.